0: Well, today we're going to continue through this, uh, our sermon series on the Christian story. So we're going to be in Genesis 3. If you have your Bibles, feel free to open in them to Genesis chapter 3. Uh, But a a number of months ago, it was probably about a year ago, I sat down in a consultation with uh, a counselor, and this counselor in particular, uh, in my opinion, looks into the most dark places of humanity on a regular basis, and I just asked her when we sat down, I said, "How?" how do you keep from just losing your mind, from becoming absolutely hopeless? You just stare into the darkest places as a vocation over and over again. And, and she just said, you know, uh, I, I, um, I pursue beauty no matter what it takes. I just, I have to pursue beauty when I have that downtime or I'll just kind of circle the drain and, and, and devolve in a lot of different ways. And so that stuck with me uh, and I had another friend here this year hand me a couple of their guest passes to Longwood Gardens. I don't know if you know what Longwood Gardens is, it's about an hour away from here. It's a botanical gardens of sorts, but on steroids with fountains and colors and, and what have you. And, and so um, I used one early in the year, and then I took a couple days off this week, and I went uh, just by myself on Thursday, and, and it, it was indeed Beautiful, and it was exactly what my soul needed. Uh, one of the most profound moments was when I walked through the meadow. They have a meadow area that I had never explored before, and I sat on this bench at the top of the hill and you 're just looking down over these tall grasses and you 're looking over it's the, all the colors of fall there 's a house in the distance, and, and the wind is blowing and, and it looks like the visual I had as I saw the blowing Uh, grass, it was like God was just taking his hand and just kind of moving it back and forth across the grass, and bees and butterflies flying all over the place, and it just, it just struck me as such a beautiful moment. Almost felt like, hey, is this what Eden felt like, the creation thing that Ward talked about last week? And then I went into the conservatory, and that's this climate controlled area of the Longwood Gardens where, you know, there's just thousands of blooms and different plants, and I found this little alcove next to a waterfall, and I just sat there for like 30 minutes just looking at beauty, and it is very rare that I actually have that opportunity to just sit in quiet and look at this beauty, and it was just stunning, very restorative. But then lunch happened, so I went to lunch, I have a little restaurant, and and usually you just, you know, go to a little hut, get your barbecue, sit down at a table. But I walked up and I'm just overwhelmed because you got to go through a couple of certain entrances and, you know, they're in hazmat suits and they sit you down and, and the only way you can order is by, you know, taking a picture of your table and, and they come and they just kind of, you know, drop a bag off and they spray disinfectant as they run away. I'm just kidding. That is not how it is at all. They actually do a really good job of keeping it safe, But but it was just this stark contrast of this beautiful place that almost it just felt like eden and and then it's masks and it's and it's and it's drop the bag and run again i'm not critiquing them what i did do is i had this moment of going ah stupid virus stupid stupid virus i hate the virus the virus is all that's wrong with the world And, and then i stopped and it just hit me as i'm thinking through this sermon this morning is i was telling a story I was actually telling a fall story. I was telling a story of what I thought was wrong with the world, at least in that moment. As we continue to walk through this picture of a Christian story, we're doing it for three reasons. One, so that we can uh, continue to grow and learn how to read our Bibles, how this fits together in its entirety. Two, it's so that we understand the basic foundations of our faith. Ward did a masterful job covering a ton of information last week, looking at creation but we want to continue to walk that forward and make sense of it as we go third it's to help us in our discipleship because really at least part of discipleship is learning to live out of God's story versus a lot of other narratives that we uh, can tell about ourselves Uh, but 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 the reality is is that we live out of and according to the story we tell and believe and that includes our fall stories Here's a picture of what we introduced here the first week. It's just a picture of God's story. Ward talked about that first panel on the left. That's creation. It says life. This week we're going to be in the second panel that is the fall that talks about loss. And so as we get going, let me just ask you some questions. What is the fall story that you tell? What's the fall story that you tell? How do you describe your struggles and your battles? Who or what do you feel is responsible for your difficulty, primarily, right? What do you feel like you lack? Many of us will tell false stories. We may say, yeah, I believe, you know, sin, it's a thing, Genesis 3. But, but what we believe our functional primary issue of fall is can take the shape of things like diseases, neighbors, our spouse, other races, other ideologies of ways of running the country we paid attention to our lives, oftentimes those represent our functional theology of what we believe the fall really is. Where does the Bible begin? Because that's what Genesis 3 is all about. The ultimate culprit of the fall that we face. Well, uh, let's start off. We'll go back. uh, War just didn't have time to To touch on this, but in 2 16 and 17, so remember, God created them in the garden, gave them the land to work, uh, created them in relationship, had relationship with them, walked uh, in the cool of the evening with Adam and Eve, and he gave them one command, just one. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You shall surely, or you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, every single one. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, I don't know why God decided to put a tree there uh, that they couldn't eat. I just, I, I cannot answer that question. I'll talk about some resources I'm giving you here in just a minute. But, but we're not going to be able to land the plane and answer every question as to the why this happened. But what we do know is God was benevolent, gracious, and he said, one thing, don't eat of that one single tree. And if you've been around a church for a while, you kind of know what happens. They ate of it, Right? And so here's where we're going to go this morning. We're going to look at the de-godding God, deep impact, and a story in search of an ending. De-godding God, deep impact, and a story in search of an ending. First, let's look at this idea of de-godding God. Three, chapter one, chapter three, verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other of the beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. All right, so the first thing we know here is there is an enemy. Now, again, we don't know a ton of details. We don't know how communication was happening. We don't know if the snake had legs. We don't know a lot of things of what's going on here. But as you read through the rest of Scripture, the serpent is most often uh, um, properly referred to as Satan. So there is an enemy of God and an enemy of humankind that show up. And if it's crazy to you that there's a talking snake, it should be because that's how crazy sin is. It doesn't make sense. Here's what we need to know about this enemy. First of all, oftentimes when we think of Satan, we think of like Thanos or the dark side, right? Where it is the equal and opposite of good and of God. But the Bible actually, from moment one, never paints Satan as such. He's not Thanos who you hope that all the superheroes can come together and just barely edge him out. He is not an equal with God just on the other side of the coin. He's a critter, he's created by the Creator. So just know that at the beginning, sometimes we can underdo Satan and, and how he can attack us, we're going to talk about that in just a moment. But sometimes we overdo him and give him a ton of credit. He was a cre- he was a created thing by God. Places like 2 Corinthians 11:14 says he was an angel of light. Jude 1:6, 2 Peter 2:4 2, talk about how he was a fallen angel. And again, we don't have a ton of information on how all that went down cosmically, but we do know that he is the enemy but he is subordinate to God. Here's the other thing is, is, we see that he's crafty. That term in Hebrew can go one of two directions. Positively, it can be interpreted as prudent. Prudent, almost like wisdom. That's the virtue side of it, but like with many virtues, it becomes a vice for him. Pride uh, came before his literal fall, and as Sherlock Holmes would say, ah me, it's a wicked world, and when a clever man turns his brains to crime, it is the worst of all. When we see that virtue of wisdom and prudence turned against God, it becomes hideous. Let's look at the method. Follow along with me. I'm going to read the second part of 1 down to 6. Satan said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of of, of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit Of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. By the way, God did not say neither shall you you touch it, right? Welcome to the human opportunity of adding to God's law. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that was a delight to God's eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. All right, so, so let's talk about uh, the serpent's methodology. What's his tactic as he moves towards Eve? Did he tempt her originally? Did he call God names and say, hey, God's, God's dumb, don't listen to him? No, he, he started with a question. Did God say that? You couldn't eat of that tree? Oh, what a cosmic killjoy, right? Here's Satan's first tactic. He gets us to doubt the goodness of God. Satan's first tactic is he gets us to doubt the goodness of God. You know, in Christian circles, you may have heard over time, you say, God loves you and offers a wonderful plan for your life. right? And even if you don't know that phrase, we usually teach in that direction. All right? but, but have you ever stopped to think that, that Satan hates you and has a terrible plan for your life? He does. He hates you. And he is constantly working to turn you against God. How might Satan be working in your life to get you to question God's goodness? Here's another phrase that I heard another pastor say. What God creates, Satan counterfeits. What God creates is good, Satan counterfeits. Think of the tree, right? Right? We don't know how it works out, but, but that tree was put there for some reason for God's glory and humankind's good. And Satan looked at that tree and spun it and said, no, that is a symbol of God not loving you. And even if we look at some of the foundational principles of what Ward talked about last week, what we see in Genesis 1 and 2 is a foundation for marriage and human sexuality. How much has Satan taken those things and said, see, if it's not going this way, then God hates you and you need to abandon him. He's not good. He's created counterfeits. He does the same thing with the imago Dei, the image of God. Right? A Christian ethic of, of, of the life of a human being is that it is valued to be protected from womb to tomb, and yet Satan has done a masterful job of creating these counterfeit ideologies that have split them between two political parties. God created it good, and Satan is constantly counterfeiting. Here's the second tactic. He makes us think we're God. He tries to get us to think we're God, and this is sin. This part right here is really what encapsulates sin. D.A. Carson says this, Satan's question smuggles the assumption that we have the ability, even the right, to stand in judgment of what God has said. He just smuggles it in with that question that he's saying, You have the right to stand in judgment over what God has said. You know, Ward uh, last week talked about what we see in creation is God being very clear. I am big C creator. There is a line, and then little c creation. The little c cannot cross that line. We can never be that big C. Yet Satan, even at the beginning, is saying, Yes, you can. Come on, Eve. Come on, Adam. Here's a third tactic. He removes the threat of judgment. Did you get that in 3 4? What does he say? The serpent said, You won't surely die. No, that can't happen. D.A. Carson says this the first doctrine to be denied according to the Bible is the doctrine of judgment. In many disputes about God and religion, this pattern often repeats itself because if you get rid of that one teaching, then rebellion has no adverse consequences. And so you're free to do anything. And what's the net result of Satan's attempts? Well, it's the de-godding of God. Now, by the way, we can't de-god God. Just saying. But that's essentially what Satan tempts humankind to think can happen. And from this point on, God must be regarded whether consciously or unconsciously either a rival or an enemy. One more D.A. Carson quote and I'll stop. What's crucial is not the tree but the rebellion. What is so wretchedly tragic is God's image bearer standing over against God. This is the de-godding of God so that I can be my own God. This in short is idolatry. We should not think that the serpent's temptation is nothing more than an an invitation to break a rule, arbitrary or otherwise. That's what a lot of people think sin is, just breaking a rule. What is at stake here is something deeper, bigger, sadder, uglier, more heinous. It's a revolution, and it makes me God and thus de-God's God. That's the nature of sin. Now, there's two topics we just can't cover right now, but I'm going to send it out in tomorrow's email of the Connect and Grow. Uh, but they're just resources to tackle things like original sin. We don't have time to go there, but what happens in this is that as we read last week in 1 Corinthians 15, um, Adam was a, what was called a covenant representative. Hosea 6-7 says that. And so every human being to come after him is represented by Adam, and that's not a good thing. We are all corrupted to our core, from conception. Here's the other thing, is the origin of evil. That's something that you've got to wrestle with. Where did this come from? And so there will be a couple of essays that I'm going to include in this week's email to help you wrestle there. But let's look at the deep impact of sin that we see as we move forward. There's a deep impact of sin as we move forward. 7 to 13. Now, hold on, let me, let me stop here. Just get into the story for a second. God created man and woman in his image to be in perfect relationship with each other and him in this gorgeous garden uh, to, to work it, to experience joy and intimacy. That backdrop makes this next section one of the most horrific reads in human history. Let's go. Verse 7. The eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed figs, fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, She gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So what's happening? Well, I'm going to just kind of water ski through some of these implications, but but what we see here in this section is first off, guilt and shame. Guilt and shame did not exist before this point. But did you hear? We hid. We hid. We hid from you, God. We sowed fig leaves because we were naked. I know it's hard for us to understand that whole naked thing, but, but it was a good thing to be naked and they didn't feel any shame. And now, I think the reason why it's so hard for us is because there is shame associated with being naked. That's horrific. They hid themselves from God who wanted to walk with them in the cool of the garden. Here's some thoughts. First, you can't undo the loss. Of innocence right you steal a car you return the car there's still this moral stain that's happened to you there's no way back to innocence in the bible uh, there's only a way forward and that's to the cross of Jesus Christ it impacted their relationships with one another did you hear it with God now there's fear there wasn't fear they walked with the creator of the universe and there was no fear and now there's fear Intimacy shattered by a moment of indiscretion. That vertical relationship was shattered along with the horizontal. You can't separate those two, by the way. All of a sudden you see in verse 12, what do you see? You see the first blame shifting, right? Eve did it. Eve did it. It's her fault. And you gave me her, by the way. Right? Do you hear that? And then did you hear Eve? The serpent did it. And I think I can read in there at the serpent, you created God, by the way, right? There is just constant blame shifting that's going on. Self-justification. The vertical impacts the horizontal. And here's what we just have to know, friends. You cannot hide moral shame with fig leaves. Or post-it notes. Or whatever that may be. They're still so impressed by themselves, and honestly, we are so impressed by ourselves that we usually can't admit guilt. We shift the blame or we self-justify. Here's a quote from G.K. Chesterton when asked by uh, journalists, what's the problem with the world? G.K. Chesterton Chesterton replies, Dear sirs, I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. Chesterton gets sin and he gets that sin is in him and he needs the saving of a Savior. There's a whole list of other places that we could go. Uh, Genesis 3.16 talks about uh, part of the curse now being pain in childbirth. Also, dynamics in marriage, where um, the the wife often wants to control the husband, and the husband often wants to use brute force to control the wife. And that gets all messed up in a hundred different ways. And I will tell you, that dynamic is so very true. I've seen it time and time again in my own office. Relationships with the world around us. Again, we see childbirth. In 317, um, you'll see this picture. Cursed is the ground because of you. Every blade of grass is cursed because of what Adam brought to the forefront by rebelling against God. We see death entering in here, right? The first time... Uh, Where he says, um, For you are dust, and to the dust you shall return. You know, it shouldn't be surprising to us that death enters the picture there. If God is the creator and the giver of life, if you detach yourself from this God and if you defy Him, what more is there than death? The ground is cursed. Um, By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread. Uh, Until you return to the ground right before it, 18 thorns and thistles will bring forth from you. You know why work is hard? It's not because work is bad. Work actually was a good thing that happened in creation. But it got hard after the fall. No longer is working the ground easy. Thorns and thistles will you battle. Has work ever been hard for you? Have you ever? No? Zoom meetings? You really like that? Yeah, thorns and thistles. Even in Romans 8, we see God talking about this, uh, or we see Paul writing about this. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it. You know who subjected all creation to futility? Adam. So what do we do? What do we do? Do y'all remember the show Lost? Some of you maybe. Um, I loved the show Lost, at least for the first four seasons. Then they kind of lost the plot. I mean, they lost the ball in the weeds with the plot. Um, you know, they never made sense of smoke monsters and polar bears and, and things like that. And I got really angry. Like, by the last episode, where uh, that everybody shows up in this ethereal, eastern mystic, Hindu, Muslim, Christian, heaven-ish thing, and didn't tie off half of the issues, I was, like, grumpy and kind of hopeless for days. I know some of y'all are going to come up to me after and be like, look, you don't get it, like here's what was really happening in that moment. I don't buy it. I think they changed writers and they just lost the ball in the weeds. And and you know what? When we're faced with the brokenness of Genesis 3 and think there's nothing left, then we're going to become grumpy and hopeless. Here's the good news. This is a story in search of an ending and we already see the ending being hinted at Uh, In places like Genesis 3.15, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, so I won't go back through it, but this is the Proto-Evangelion, they call it, or the first gospel, the first mention of Jesus, where he's saying, I'm going to send a rescuer. And then we see this in 3.21. Remember guilt and shame of his people. They're trying to hide it with fig leaves. And then we have this. The Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. This is the first bloodshed in the Bible. God taking the life of an animal and covering their sin, at least as best could be in that moment in time. And friends, that points us ahead to the other shedding of blood. In John 1.29, the next day Jesus saw coming towards him, he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Another animal that was shed for the guilt and shame of those who would call on him in faith. Here's why these things are important. If we don't get the Genesis 3 stuff right, the true enemy, the true fall, I'm not saying those other things that you list are insignificant. They're enormously significant. But what lies behind all of those is our very own rebellion and fist-shaking against God. We don't believe it starts with sin, that the contagion is here in me and in you, and that the only way to really reconcile that and redeem that is Jesus Christ, then we will devolve into the very same thing we see Adam and Eve doing. Blame shifting, self-justification, anger. And if our ultimate enemy is anything other than sin and Satan and death, then we're going to go and try to find a savior somewhere else. And if we do that, we will become hopeless, which is really the pandemic, especially among the younger generations. And I think that's because even in the church, we have held up something other than Jesus as our Savior. And we're finding it a bankrupt hope, which leads to our hopelessness. And some people might say, are you just telling me to go do evangelism and pray all the time? Is that what you're saying the Christian life then is? Absolutely not. A mentor of mine called me this week and said, Anthony, uh, I couldn't sleep last night and I was just pacing the room all night and I would pace and then I would stop and kneel and pray. And eventually I said, God, this broken world, it's yours to fix. I can't fix it. And he said, and then I fell asleep and I woke up this morning with renewed vigor to lean into all the things we're facing as a church, race and masks and pandemics. So he didn't remove himself from those problems that he calls the church into of injustice and suffering. But what he said to me is, it actually freed me up to let go and to trust him to do his work as I move forward and love my enemies and lay my life down for them, knowing that the battle is already won. Friends, though we try to de-God God, he offers grace to the rebel in Jesus Christ and promises to redeem all creation as far as the curse is found. Let me pray as we move towards communion this morning. Lord, this is a challenging text. And even in my own heart, it's still, as I'm sitting there saying this stupid pandemic, my heart is prone to blame a million other things than sin that that reigns in me. That I needed the God of the universe to live and die for on behalf of me. And so, Lord, would you help us as a church to to not live in the story of the fall, but live out of the story and the same story that is moving us towards the person and work of Jesus Christ. Be with us as we move towards communion this morning, we pray in your name. Amen.